0: You are
1: listening to the weekly sermon podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. If you'd like to learn more about CBC, check out our website at cbcofsavannah.org. And now, this week's message.
0: My privilege to introduce you all this morning to a man who's had a great impact in my life, uh, was my third preaching professor, as, lo- as well as he was my, my first semester in seminary, taught the class on spiritual life. Um, and really, as my thick PE major-headed self, didn't really grasp the process of expository preaching until I think I, I got through with his class. It was my only A in any Preaching class, I want you to know, A minus. I got in one of my sermons. It's a miracle, uh, before graduating. Uh, But just was a great teacher and enabled me to understand and grasp just a little bit, at least, the process of expository preaching that that you guys get to hear every Sunday. And I probably will. You'll be greatly disappointed after after hearing your sermon today because you'll be like, "This is what we're supposed to be getting, and this is what we're getting on a weekly basis." But um, Dr. Richard also was very encouraging and affirming and, and giving me a vision for teaching abroad. And, and some you know that I've every year had the privilege of going overseas and teaching uh, some sort of college setting or pastoral setting. And I've taught his book on preaching uh, in three different countries, in Tanzania, in the Ukraine, and in uh, Nicaragua, as, as God has allowed me to do. So his impact through that, just through one guy in a seminary class, has gone far beyond just the doors of CBC, and so been grateful for his ministry there. He has an international ministry called Reach. There's information on the table, some of his books on the table. I'd really highly encourage you to grab some of that. We as a church support monthly the ministry of Reach and, and what uh, God is doing through Dr. Richard, and uh, we're, we're privileged to have him and his wife with us this morning. Um, he's preached two times already, and so, uh, so you can pray for him as in this third service, as, as I know how he's feeling. Just it's a, it's a long day, but it's been a great encouragement to our church, and so I want to welcome him to come up here one more time and to preach and his wife Bonnie is with them in the front rows. So you can meet them after the service, but come on up and uh, and speak again. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Richard
1: Six weeks ago in the city of Peshawar, Pakistan, uh, after people had gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus headed out, they were Uh, terrorized by a bomb and uh, 40 of our brothers and sisters were killed another 145 or so were injured and so to be able to be in a place where this freedom and song I actually was in China once where they uh, had to sing at the loudest whisper so that they wouldn't be reported upon so uh, this is great to, to, to be here While in Pakistan, a man in the majority culture dress came to me, crushed my fist, and he said, greetings to you in the name of the Most High One. When you're in Pakistan, you do not know who is the Most High One, but he finished out and said, the Lord Jesus Christ. So ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, friends here at Community Bible, greetings to you in the name of the Most High One, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Thank you. This is the one Sunday every pastor looks forward to because everybody's on time. Uh, did, did, you, did you know that? Because of the setting uh, falling back of the clocks. A Native American was once asked to describe daylight savings time. He said it's simply cutting off the top of the blanket and sewing it at the bottom to keep your feet warm. And uh, we make these adjustments in order to understand life. Great to be in uh, Savannah and, and Georgia, but especially to be with your Pastor Bill. Disclosure uh, right away, don't blame me for everything he does over here, right? <laughs> I guess I taught him introductions, but not conclusions. So we need to do something to... Him. But he's a dear brother uh, with a great heart. Now, some pastors are afraid of their sheep. Some pastors are allergic to their sheep. Uh, some pastors love and lead their sheep. And I sense that in Bill. Look forward to what your next uh, steps will be, both in church plans and the auditorium next door. Uh, that'll be preserving Bill as a younger Bill rather than growing old too fast. The only thing I asked him about was what I should speak about. He said about 45 minutes. And, and then he said, "Where what you want. It reminded me of the time where at this one church, The first service I had to wear a dye-in jacket, the second service they said I could take off my tie, the third service they said I could take off my jacket, and I'm glad there was no seven services. That would have been uh, been, been, uh, real tough. Okay, in addition to being at Dallas Seminary, as uh, Pastor Bill mentioned, I serve as leader of of REACH, a, a global proclamation ministry. Our vision is to change the way 1,000 million individuals think and hear about the Lord Jesus. Right now, we're in the middle of a high-quality human capital campaign. It's a 10-year campaign to connect, unite, strengthen pastors from all across the world, 200-country footprint, into a global proclamation community so that we can accelerate church health worldwide. When the pastor is healthy, the churches are healthier. When the church is healthier, the societies in which people operate are healthier. I uh, face about 836 days of intensity. If the Lord gives me life and breath and everything, uh, we get to uh, be right in the middle of the decade for a giant push of the flywheel in the momentum that we seek. If you'd like to know more about the work, I think uh, Master Bill said there's a table there. You, you... I'm not just a speaker, I'm here with a cause. And I do not accept many speaking engagements unless I, I get to share about the cause. So thank you for being here on this beautiful Sunday, new month, new uh, week. As you know, there are different levels of understanding. At the lower levels are knowledge as well as education at the lowest levels. Many people confuse knowledge and education as the highest. You know, PhD stands for permanent head damage, uh, (laughs) and and THD for total head damage, okay? The next level up is what is called analysis and evaluation. So if you're able to analyze and evaluate, uh, you are one step higher on on the rung. The topmost, the highest order of education is what is called synthesis and application. So based on knowledge and understanding, analysis, and evaluation, then synthesis and application. I'm trusting that we'll be able to contribute a little bit to your synthesis and application. They also told me that the third service, I can go as long as I want. Is that true? (laughs) Okay. generally, I like to leave my audience before they leave me. I'll try to do my best uh, to leave you before you leave me. I've been in in Psalm 90 uh, for my devotional feeding over the last uh, seven days or so. It's a psalm which keeps reminding us of our frailty, our mortality, our poverty before God who is from everlasting to everlasting, your God. That we are transient, we are indigent, we are inept. At the last part of the psalm, the psalmist prays, God please confirm the works of our hands. Establish the works of our hands. Now, none of us here knows how long we're going to live. Anybody knows how long you're going to live? So I downloaded two clocks. One is called a world clock, which tells me what the population of the world is at any given time. The second is a death clock, which tells me when I'm supposed to die. I think I've survived it already. Uh, It's they compute algorithms of your alcohol intake, your smoking, your blood pressure, your parental heart problems and all that good stuff. But the, the reality is nobody knows how long we're going to be alive. And so, I want to give you a theology for the rest of your life. A philosophy of spiritual existence. This is a, a 15-week course, which is compressed in about 40 minutes where people pay thousands of dollars and write hundreds of pages of papers, okay? But you're going to get it free, if that's okay with you. I wanted to change uh, my topic for the second, third service, but Pastor Bill said, go ahead and do the same talk. I'm hoping it'll be of encouragement to you. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you have it, to the real Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer that we normally pray, Our Father who art in heaven is a prayer that the Lord Jesus could not have prayed. That's the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. For example, forgive us our sins, our debts, even as you forgive those who are debtors against us. The Lord Jesus could not have prayed that. He didn't have any sin. But here is a prayer that he actually prayed in John chapter 17. Now I'd like to mention it as we go into uh, the talk. as my launch off verse. John chapter 17, verse 4. The Lord Jesus says, Father, I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished, that's a little word I want you to circle, having accomplished the work you have given me to do, having finished the work you've given me to do. A couple of chapters later, at the climax of his death, he he belches out a death cry which says, it is what? Finished. Not I am finished, it is finished. It's theology of finishing. In Acts chapter 20, Paul says, I dare not speak a word about myself except to finish the race, the course that has been set before me. Finish it. My wife and I, we have a personal trainer. He is cruel in every way. He helps me find muscles I do not know existed. And just when I'm taking my last breath, he'll say, Finish it out now. Finish it out now. You're going know, to finish it out now. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul looks back at his life, and in the epitaph best known in Christian circles, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. So as we go into this particular talk, I want you to pray a short prayer aloud with me. It simply says, Lord Jesus, open my heart to you this morning. Let's pray that prayer aloud, okay? Lord Jesus, open my heart to you this morning. I thank you that you've preceded my coming into every one of these lives, and you'll be there after I leave today. So, for these uh, minutes that we spend together, I pray that I will sense your empowerment in the middle of my limitations, comprehensive limitations, and without embarrassment to be able to share. For the third time, this talk. Give me enthusiasm and your authorization. And Lord, for hearts that have prayed the prayer of opening towards you, would you move forward into the will. Touch the psyche. In the name of the Lord Christ and for the sake of his reputation, I ask. All right, my opening illustration comes as far back as 150 years ago with an English preacher by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Many versions and perversions of it are found on the Internet. The one who made it most popular is the great trophy of Mormon common grace by the name of Stephen Covey, who died last night, uh, last year. He, uh, in his seminars on Effective Living, talks about a time management expert who brought a wide-mouthed glass mason jar and put some big rocks in it. And he asks his group, is it full? And they say, yeah. And he says, not quite. And brings some gravel, puts it on top of the big rocks, and says, uh, is the jar full? Now, they know that the guy is up to something. He says, maybe not. So he brings some beach sand, puts it on top of the gravel, on top of the big rocks, and says, is it full? And by now, they know that he's onto something. They say, no, definitely not. And he brings some water, pours it on top, of the beach sand, top of the gravel, on top of the big rocks. and says, now what is the point of the story? Immediately somebody in the back says, it means, sir, that however busy your life is, you can always find time to squeeze in a bit more. (laughs) And he says, not at all. It means that unless you put the big rocks in first, it's difficult to put them in later. So ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, friends here this morning, I'm going to give you three big rocks for, for your spiritual existence for the rest of your life, so we can finish just well. Each of these rocks is a word. We're going to give you a question around the word and some direction towards addressing the question. A word, a question around the word, and some direction in terms of finishing out the question. Now, we have a dog. He will always remain an outside dog. In fact, he's my son's dog. In the morning, he darts out. My goodness, he can take off at the highest speed after being dormant through the night. He's, he barks at neighboring dogs. He chases squirrels up a tree, in fact, his own tail, and then uh, dashes back into the garage when my son brings a bit of food and wife brings a little bit of water, salivates, consumes, dashes out, does the same thing, and then uh, goes to sleep in the night, in the morning gets up and does the same thing. Again, over and over again. It reminds me of human beings who have gone to the dogs. My dog has the first big rock. We're going to call it passion. The question is, is it passion and energy after the right thing? What distinguishes you from the sheer mere brutes? Is the quality of your object of passion? In fact, I'm going to give you the question that passion answers. It's what have you set your heart upon? What have you set your heart upon? For example, the old testament says, do not set your heart upon riches. Do you know that the seventh richest man in the world as of last September was went into bankruptcy this last week? A Brazilian Playboy. (laughs) Salesman. Don't set your heart upon riches. Now, what is, in contemporary understanding, is passion that over which you can really get excited about. You get excited about food, about fun, about family, about football. I got an email from the Philippines this last week. And uh, the email said, Last year, Alabama beat Arkansas, and Arkansas fired the coach. Alabama beat Tennessee, and Tennessee fired the coach. Alabama beat Auburn. Auburn fired their coach, and Alabama beat Notre Dame, and the Pope resigned. <laughs> now they're trying to find Alabama to play Congress right now. So. <laughs> Football. I mean, anything becomes passion. They said the three passions of the American male. Cars, girls, and back to cars again. What are you getting really excited about? Family, wife, husband, kids, clothes, computers, IT, technology, new models. Actually, that's not the meaning of the word passion. The meaning of the word passion comes from the last week of the Lord Jesus' life. It's called what week? The Passion, passion Week. It's from a Latin word with a Greek root as well. It means, what do you love so much? Your heart set upon that you're willing to suffer for it. He loved you so much and me. He set his heart upon you that he was willing to suffer for it. It is a passion question the Lord Jesus answered. When in Mark chapter 12, the scribe comes to the Lord Jesus and says, Hey, what's the foremost of all of this? First commandment. And verse 29, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. By the way, the Lord our God is a person. He's not an abstraction. He's not a principle he is not a force he is not an idea he's a person how do you love persons with words deeds and gifts that's how you love god with words deeds and gifts and then he goes on to use four nouns heart soul mind and strength but before every one of these nouns repeats the phrase with all your with all your with all your with all your for people who are slow like me that doesn't register easily I mean, it goes from knowledge to understanding, but never to synthesis and application. I want you to love God for who He is with everything you've got. And the love of neighbor is an overflow of loving Him with all your strength. Now that is the fundamental Question of the spiritual life. What have you set your heart upon? He himself says the first commandment. Indeed, after his resurrection, he comes to Peter and says, Simon, son of John, do you what? Love me more than these. Do you know that only Yahweh in the Old Testament was supposed to be loved that way? And now Peter says, of course, I love you. The same love that Yahweh expected of us, we're giving to Jesus. That's a veiled claim to deity by the Lord Jesus. It's the only way to prevent us from falling into idolatry. Because your heart and my heart is the biggest idol manufacturing factory in the world. I can take good things and turn them into idols. I've got so many competing allegiances. I turn good stuff into worship centers. Now at this point, people ask, isn't it good to have passion for your work of course it's good to have passion for your work in fact if you don't have passion for your work i don't want you working with me should you have passion for some hobbies of course so how does it relate to passion for christ i want to illustrate this and then give you a principle that will be of help for the rest of your life first the illustration how many of you are married Some of you are slower to put up your hands, but all right. Did you notice that when things are going well with your spouse, everything else is a little easier? When things are not going well with your spouse, everything else has a cloud hanging over it? Hello? Okay. It's the same way with loving God, loving the Lord Jesus. When you love Him rightly... You can love all the other things rightly that you should be loving rightly. You know, your spouse, your kids, and and even things when they're difficult to love them rightly. But when you do not love the Lord Jesus rightly, everything else is going to be messed up. Here's the principle if you want to write this down. You can have many passions in life, but only one passion off life. You can have many passions in life, but only one passion off life. My dog is distracted with many passions in life. He doesn't have a passion of life. You are distinguished from the animals. You can choose your passion. And trust the passion of your life is the Lord Jesus. So, passion, the question is, what have you set your heart upon? The direction is, make Jesus your first love. Make Jesus first love. I'm going to give you some homework. Now this is something you can do right now. Actually, you already know the answer. Somewhere perhaps this afternoon or tomorrow, I want you to get a clean sheet of paper and draw a picture of your heart on it. A picture of your heart. And then I want you to put a question mark inside your heart. You're only allowed one object, not two. One object. It's a tough question and an easy answer. The easy answer we know, but all these competitive stuff. Arousal. Competing with Christ. Some of you know the game of football. I mean, the real football. Soccer, you know, like it's really played with your foot, and it's round like a ball. <laughs> the Brazilian captain was uh, Lucio about two World Cups ago. They're preparing for a new one soon. So they just won it. The whole world, a billion people watch football, by the way. And at the end of it, they're giving uh, press interviews, and this guy changes out his Brazilian shirt for a new T-shirt. Where it says, Jesus Christ, my passion. See, football is a passion in his life, but it's not a passion of his life. Okay, let me throw another sport at you cricket. Another billion people watch cricket. Cricket is just like baseball, except the longer it takes to retrieve the ball, the more runs you get, okay? One of the great cricketers of the past in the 19th century was a man by the name of Stud, C.T. Stud. Great Christian man, towards the latter part of his professional career, was called to China to be a missionary. His fiancée was getting ready as well. He wrote a prayer that he wanted her to pray Every day for the rest of their life together. This is how it went. She was to pray every day for the rest of her life, this prayer. My dear Jesus, you are to me more precious than my husband can ever be. My dear Jesus, you are to me more precious, dearer than my husband can ever be. Now, C.T. Studd was a smart man. He knew his wife could make him an idol in her life. I know some of you guys are wishing that your wife will make you an idol in her life. But it was deeper than that. He knew if she loved Jesus rightly, she'd love him rightly. If you love Jesus wrongly, unless you put the big rocks in first, it's difficult to put them in later. The life rock one is passion. It's to make Jesus first love. Now we come to the second rock. This is the word mission. Mission. I told you passion distinguishes you from the animals. Mission distinguishes you from unbelievers. So you get up in the morning, you have a cup of coffee, check your email, catch some news, head off to work, a couple of decisions, some more email, lunch, another cup of coffee. On the way back, you stop by Starbucks. I like Starbucks without the box, actually. I was in Ethiopia, and they gave me a cafe macchiato for $0.06 cents a cup. Okay, And five years later, the price had gone up to $0.22 cents a cup. So that cured my any interest in Starbucks. <laughs> that night, you eat uh, maybe a dinner, watch the late-night routine, go to bed, get up the next morning, have a cup of coffee. You know, unbelievers do the same thing every day. They get up in the morning, have a cup of coffee. They catch their emails. To go to work. Now, what distinguishes you from unbelievers? It's your mission. Mission answers a question, if you want to write this down. Why do you do what you do? Not just what you do, but why do you do what you do? Every day. It's a cute story coming out of the border towns across uh, Texas and Mexico before they sealed it, of young Jose, who would ride his bicycle across the borderline with a sandbag on his handlebar. Every day, bicycle across the borderline, sandbag on his handlebar. The border patrol agent assigned to him said, man, I'm sure he's bringing something very precious. They spot-checked him. They stopped and wondered if it was drugs in Central America with this gold across the border. And Every day, same thing, sandbag. So the agent looked at young Jose and said, Son, if you tell me what you're bringing every day across the U.S., I will never stop you again. And Jose said, Sir, every day I bring a new bicycle into America. <laughs> You've got to decide. Sandbags or bicycles? On the surface, everybody is doing the same thing. But what distinguishes me and you from unbelievers is the reason why do you do what you do. And the Bible has a great answer to it. At the end of 1 Corinthians 10, this is a theme which reverberates throughout the entire scripture. the end of two verses, 1 Corinthians 10, it says, uh, two chapters, verse 31, whatever you do, whatever you do, whether you eat or Drink, coffee, that's not there. You do it, do the what? To make Jesus look great. That's my paraphrase of bringing glory to God. To make the Lord Jesus look great. Whatever you do. If I'm standing in front of you, I need to say this to make Jesus look great. My number one fear is to embezzle, steal, rob God's glory. And I can do that while I'm saying that to you. mission is to make Jesus look great. Many of you are aware that the word glory, glory of God, is the word for weight, physical weight, like pounds and kilograms in the Old Testament. Did you know this? Because a man who was substantive had the resources to eat well and had influence over his society... In a poor economy, it actually is true, even now, if you came with me to the South Pacific. It's only rich economies, people want to be thin, okay? Now, what the Bible does, it adopts this weight metaphor and applies this to God. To bring glory to God is to give weight to God. Here is the strategic assumption. The more weight God has in your life, the more great He looks through your life. Okay? The more weight God has in your life, the more great He looks through your life. He has less weight, less great. More weight, more great. Are you with me? By the way, in India, where I grew up, we say yes like this and no like this, okay? <laughs> some, some people say yes and no like this, and they really <laughs> mess up everything. But. So the more weight He has, the more great He looks. So I'm going to give you some homework for the next two months. You, you're going to tell Pastor Bill, do not bring these kind of guys again to church. We'll give homework from the pulpit. <laughs> okay. I'm going to take another piece of paper. I'm going to draw two lines. Makes three columns at the top. I want you to write personal, middle, family, third, work. Study whatever consumes most of your waking hours. Personal, family, work. And now I want you to think about... Where is God a lightweight? Where is God a lightweight in my personal life, family life, work life, study life? If you're a student, for example, in your personal life, will will be things like your devotional feeding, your exercise, your sleep—not in church, but I mean your sleep. Why sleep at home when you come to church and sleep, right? I see some of you descending into the second stage of rapid eye movement right now. <laughs> your sexuality, your exercise, habits, all kinds of stuff, your giving, all kinds of stuff under personal. Under family, relationship to your spouse, your kids, your parents, your grandparents, the whole gamut of family. Some cultures are wide, you know, families, lots of people, some are nuclear. The, Family of God, even the human family. And the third would be your work. Performance issues, excellence issues. Are you giving your best? What about your motivation levels? Character, integrity, honesty, all those other kinds of stuff. You know what it is. Now, I want you to ask, where is God at present a lightweight? Since you only have two months to answer this question, I want you to do one of each of these categories. Just pick one and address that. It's just like our guys at the back upstairs. They've got a mixer board. They've got six or seven mics, and they say, oh, this mic needs to come up, this one needs to go down. That's exactly what we're asking you to do. Your heart is a mixer board. Some needs to get up, some needs to come down. Does God have weight? Now, I still have immaturity left in me, but sometimes my immaturities were even more enhanced like some years ago. And my wife made a comment which my maleness and ego misinterpreted and overread it. So I was moping around the house. Has anybody else done that? There are no honest people here. (laughs) So that day I opened my Bible. My reading happens to be Ephesians 4, 2. It says, be completely humble. Now I knew I've got to be humble, but completely humble? In all humility it says, Now, what does that mean? Will I be able to give God the weight in my life to resolve this issue? Will I be mature enough to be the leader in initiating this conversation? If he has weight in my life, guess what? I've got to act on it. If he doesn't have weight, enjoy my arrogance and pride. So I went to her. And I said to her, sweetheart, this thing has happened. Uh, I will admit I'm wrong if you admit I'm right. (laughs) Some of you men need to write this down. I admit I'm wrong if you admit I'm right. She said, you go first. I I, I said I was wrong and she said, you're right. Uh, will I give Jesus weight in my life to bring him glory, to make him look great? Many of you know the name of Johann Sebastian Bach, the great Lutheran voice of God, the Economist magazine called him just a couple of weeks ago. That guy was brilliant. Ten of his kids died. I think his first wife died. I don't know that he survived a second wife. He just said, I'm, I'm nothing, I'm just a plotter. But after every one of his compositions, he had a strange habit. Not only would he sign a JSB, his name, Johann Sebastian Bach, but he would also sign it SDG, like Pastor Bill was talking about this morning. Soledare gloria, to God's glory alone. You know that one? <laughs> Soledare gloria. So whatever you do. In your relationships, in your attitudes, in your values, in your actions, to God's glory alone. So, unless you put the big rocks in first, it's difficult to put them in later. The first one is what? Passion, to make Jesus first love. The second one is? To make Jesus look great. Now we come to the third one. We're going to call it vision. Another word Used in leadership literature, it's basically an optical word, right? You go buy glasses at a vision store. And so leadership literature says, you know, what change are you going to make in this world? What difference are you going to make in this world? Because you existed. Those are very valid, but I've got a great question borrowed from the greatest writer of English devotional literature who died at the age of 43. I went looking for his grave in Cairo, Egypt, and Khartoum, Sudan. They hadn't even heard of him. Oswald Chambers. He says the definition of vision answers the question, how can Jesus help himself to my life? How can Jesus help himself to my life? It is not a question that Jesus needs my help. Jesus does not need help. But it's a question of surrender and abandonment. Please help yourself to my life. Many people have faulty visions and flawed visions. Long life as of this guarantee. I've actually had some people say, the first half of your life, you're going to be successful. The second half of your life, you've got to be significant. How many of you know when your second half starting? Anybody does? So the vision for a long life is not valid. In fact, nobody in the Bible is looking for significance except for the builders of the Tower of Babel. In fact, I thought I might be speaking on Babel today. I didn't get to. Or good health. Health is a fundamental. And through the night, I was asking for God's good health so I can do these three talks this morning. I know a man, a friend's father, who bought himself a hospital and named the hospital after him so that he'd get first attention when he gets sick enough. As a last report, he's dead. The only vision that sustains, that counts, that is long, is not changeable because God is unchangeable goes from year to year, age to age, everlasting to everlasting. It climaxes in Revelation 7, 9. As saints come out of the tribulation, and I looked after this, I looked. Vision, word. And people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation gather around to sing salvation to the Lamb and to the throne. everybody around the throne who acknowledged the Lamb, who knew God. So unless my vision aligns with his vision, to some degree, I'm unproductive and deficient. I live a random life. Because passion distinguishes you from animals. Mission distinguishes you from unbelievers. Vision will distinguish you from baby believers and immature believers. Growing believers are constantly aligning themselves to God's vision. Now, how does it play on Monday for you? I don't want you to forget that I have not forgotten that I'm going to give you homework. This can go for the rest of your life. But next year is a great time, if all of us do exist, 2014. Take another piece of paper and draw a line. Divide it in half. On the top, I want you to write stars. The bottom, I want you to write scars. Stars and scars. This is one of many tools. This is not the only tool. But I found this to be helpful. If you don't know your gifts and all the skill assessments so on, here's a good way. Stars will tell you about the great accomplishments of your life, your business, family, all the accomplishments. It'll give you some insight as to your motivations. It'll even give you insight as to your temptations. But more than that, in terms of vision involvement, is scars, the scars of your life. Because where God has taken you, tenderized you, and crushed you, is a special sensitivity that only you have that nobody else has. Two days ago, I had a couple sitting in my office. An older couple whose daughter was one of our friends died after a seven-month bout with something they call an NK something, natural killer. That's the technical name. Teary and hopeful at the same. And Then they told me that two years prior, their son was killed in a car wreck. Two kids in three years. Now, I have another friend who just lost his son at 38. Guess who's more sensitive to that man's need? Somebody who's gone through this deep, deep scar. So whether it's death or disease or divorce or uh, whatever, destitution, deprivation that you've experienced, those are all God's working for your contribution to his vision just exactly where you are. If you came with me to a church in Romania, that church, uh, everybody is trained to answer the question the same way. What do you do? I am a disciple of Jesus disguised as a plumber. I'm a disciple of Jesus disguised as a doctor. I'm a disciple of Jesus disguised as a housewife. I'm a disciple of Jesus disguised as a teacher. You're a disciple of Jesus disguised exactly where you are. You're contributing to the vision. Because vision is to make Jesus look great. And make Jesus well known. To make him well known. Mission is to make Jesus look great. Vision is to make Jesus well known. Well known in your sphere. Uh, Selling Pastor possibility, you've got so many talented, gifted people sitting right in front of you every week. Our great challenge is to deploy you, to help you discover and develop and then deploy you into the situations, because you'll be places where he'll never be. That's your contribution to the vision, to make him well-known. If you came with me to Mumbai, India, formerly called Bombay, There is a beautiful building there sitting at the edge of the ocean. Something unusual about it, it's it's not facing the ocean. (laughs) 110 years old now. About five years ago, it was attacked by terrorists from the back. who came in, the front was guarded. The plans for this building were sent from the UK to a British builder in India who spared no money no materials the finest sort to build this beautiful, beautiful building. It's now uh, a premier hotel. So when the builder finished out his building, he wrote to the architect and said, well, you need to come down to see our building. So the architect jumped on a boat, and he arrived. But it was night. All he could see was a silhouette. He asked the man on the boat if he could wait on night and catch a glimpse of the building from the ocean, the full frontal face of it. He could hardly sleep that night, got up the next morning at the first break of dawn, rushed to the handrails, held on to it. His heart leaped with joy for one second. And then his mouth dropped in horror because this magnificent building had been built backwards. It now faces a sprawling city rather than the ocean. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, it is possible for you to build beautiful, strong, lovely lives facing backwards. But if you align to the vision, If you restructure your passion to make Jesus first love, if you renovate your mission to make him look great, and you hit the hard reset button, you can start up again toward the vision to making Jesus well-known. Unless you put the big rocks in first, it is difficult to put them in later. First rock is what? Passion, to make Jesus first love. Second one is mission, to make Jesus look great. Third one is vision, to make him well known. Would you bow in prayer, please? I did this in the first service. We did not have time in the second service. But perhaps uh, in this service, God has been speaking about these kinds of matters over the last day, two, ten days, weeks, months, throughout the year, or years. You're saying, Ramesh, Richard, something uh, is working in my life, and I'm being brought to the basics of my spiritual existence. The great promise of the spiritual life is that we, we get to start up again and again and again, a series of new starts. And since you prayed this morning that the Lord Jesus will open your heart to him, I would like to give you the opportunity in a special way simply to respond to the stock. I'm not going to be looking around, I would only look at the outward appearance. Anyway, God looks at the heart. If you're saying God's been touching these matters and embedding them into my soul and tenderizing me uh, to the matters of my passion and mission and vision, I don't want many to stand up, but would you quietly stand up in response, just a few of you, and then I'll close in prayer, just a few of you, if God has been moving in your heart in these ways, today or before, you want a fresh, new, hard reset. Lord Jesus, from the periphery of uh, movement, I presume that there are those who are making these decisions today. And I ask, Lord, that you will allow this inclination to meet opportunity. That the month of November of 2013 and the rest of our lives so that we will truly finish life having glorified you on this earth. I commend them, and many here have already made these adjustments. So we join them, Lord, and help us to encourage one another in serving you, and loving you, and honoring you. I thank you for uh, this congregation, Community Bible Church, and pray that you bless the pastors and the leaders and uh, put inordinate courage into their lives, so that they can continue to grow in health first and then in numbers so that influence throughout the city and beyond through homes through offices through schools will multiply thank you for the great joy of having been here to see uh, the fruit of small labor that you've given to me over the years and please continue your wonderful strategic 2,000 year agenda uh, to especially those who responded today You may be seated in the name of the Lord Jesus, for the glory of the Father, by the power of the Spirit, for the very best of many everywhere, I ask these things. Amen. Jesus'
0: words to his church, to his disciples, he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? I want to thank again Dr. Richard for worshiping with us and leading us this morning. Uh, if you guys would give him a hand. It was just a great, great to have you here. A blessing for us. Um, and I pray that they would be words that we don't just hear, that we would be doers of the word uh, and doers of those, those encouragements that he gave us. Have a great week and we will see you all next Sunday.